This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we'll complain about Joe Biden. He's the only leading Democratic candidate who has not signed the pledge to support whoever wins the party nomination. Why not? Ezra Levin of Indivisible will comment. And another thing. Joe Biden was the only leading Democratic candidate who did not come to the California State Democratic Convention two weeks ago in San Francisco. Why didn't he do that? David Dayan was there. He will explain. First up, Bernie talked about socialism yesterday. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, yesterday, Wednesday, Bernie gave a major speech in Washington about socialism, and Harold Meyerson was there. Of course, Harold is editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. We reached him today in Washington. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, Bernie once before in recent years gave a big speech about socialism. That was in 2015 when his primary campaign was taking off. Uh, You were there for that one, too. Remind us where we stood in 2015 with Bernie's definition of socialism. Well, in 2015, uh, Bernie spoke at uh, Georgetown University in a driving rain, uh, and students were standing outside in the rain for hours, uh, waiting to get in. And uh, Bernie essentially uh, said much the same thing that he said uh, yesterday at George Washington University. He basically aligned himself with uh, Franklin Roosevelt's 1944 State of the Union address, in which Roosevelt called for an economic bill of rights. Uh, Bernie uh, uh, mentioned that prominently and said he was more or less uh, renewing that uh, in uh, in 2015. And yesterday, uh, speaking at the George Washington University, a couple of miles from Georgetown and four years later, uh, he, he said much the same thing in a somewhat different context. Uh, and he got specific about introducing uh, his own version of an economic bill of rights and saying what it would cover, which was uh, things like uh, affordable education and universal health care and affordable housing. And all of these were ec- economic rights to which the American people were uh, entitled. Um, so, so we have a clip. We actually have a clip of the heart of Bernie's speech. He talked for a long time, almost an hour. But his uh, definite not long for Bernie. <laughs> correct, <laughs> correct. But but his this part. My point here is, the part where he gave his outlined his socialist program was quite brief, and we are able to play it for you now. It's just a minute and forty seconds. Let's listen to Bernie yesterday defining what he means by socialism. In 1944, FDR proposed an economic bill of rights, but he died a year later and was never able to fulfill that vision. Our job, 75 years later, is to complete what Roosevelt started. And that is why today I am proposing a 21st century economic Bill of Rights. A Bill of Rights that establishes once and for all 
that every American, regardless of his or her income, is entitled to the right to a decent job that pays a living wage. The right to quality health care. The right to a complete education. The right to affordable housing. The right to a clean environment and the right to a secure retirement. Over the course of this election, my campaign has been releasing and will continue to release detailed proposals addressing each of these yet-to-be-realized economic rights. We will also address the attacks that are being launched every day against the civil rights and civil liberties of our people. And let me be absolutely clear. Democratic socialism means to me requiring and achieving political and economic freedom in every community in this country. That's Bernie Sanders yesterday, Wednesday in Washington. So, Harold Meyerson, your comments on this. Well, that's basically a classic social democratic program. It, it actually doesn't really, in and of itself, uh, address uh, the fundamental nature of capitalism. It simply takes out of the calculus of the market a number of absolutely key rights. And I don't mean by in saying this, I don't, I don't mean to uh, poo-poo or demean it. That would be a huge leap forward for the United States. But it is, it is really a classic social democratic program. Now, there's a certain, you know, I mean, to a certain degree, the uh, socialist parties of, of Europe, uh, with which, uh, uh, you know, American socialists like Bernie have uh, long had an affinity, uh, have really not gone significantly beyond at all these, these kind of social democratic uh, policies. So in, in that sense, if he wants to say he's in the mainstream of uh, historic socialism, uh, not the totalitarian version, but the democratic version, he's, he's right. But the actual existing mainstream of democratic socialism basically has left a lot of capitalism in place uh, and its fundamental relations in place. And then one of the striking things about the speech were things he didn't say. Yeah. He, and, he and Elizabeth Warren, for instance, both have proposed dividing corporate boards between shareholder representatives and worker representatives, which is called co-determination and exists in Scandinavian countries and most prominently in Germany. There's also been talk about Bernie uh, endorsing a, a version of uh, corporations uh, rewarding uh, the, the collectively rewarding workers uh, with shares in the company, which is a, 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 was a plan in Sweden which never quite came to fruition to transfer the ownership of companies uh, to their employees. Um, th these were more directly socialist proposals, which were nowhere to be heard uh, in, in Bernie's speech. Uh, I mean, it, it, he, he pretty much, as he said, uh, is, is putting forward a renewed version of the New Deal, and certainly elements of the New Deal, Social Security and Lyndon Johnson's successor to that, Medicare, are classic social democratic programs, uh, without which it'd be hard to see how this nation could have survived as long as it has. Um, and, uh, you know, no reference uh, to 
any socialists in Bernie's speech. Uh, lengthy quotations from Roosevelt. In fact, the biggest applause line came from his quoting uh, a Roosevelt 1936 speech in which Roosevelt said he was welcoming the hatred of, of oligarchs, basically, economic oligarchs. Um, but no reference to socialists, except a, a, a somewhat glancing reference to Martin Luther King, and considerable reference to Roosevelt and Harry Truman, who did introduce, uh, unsuccessfully, the first Medicare for All uh, uh, plan, as it were, uh, when, when he was president, or Medicare plan, and that didn't uh, get enacted until Lyndon Johnson was president. So in, in a certain sense, Bernie is saying, I'm a socialist, and uh, what I mean by that is uh, the modernization of classic New Deal uh, social democratic legislation. Well, I have a few specific uh, questions about, about this. Uh, for instance, he said uh, on the environment, he defined socialism as the right to a clean environment. That's an idea of, like, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. It's, isn't a clean environment very different from a Green New Deal? It is, although I have no doubt Bernie supports the Green New Deal. I think that was just wording uh, in a speech that was already, uh, you know, overlong. In other words, I wouldn't put too much okay. concern behind his, his wording there. And what about uh, the right to quality health care? Uh, are there any Democratic candidates who are not in favor of the right to quality health care? Uh, no, no. Uh, and admittedly, his rather telegraphic descriptions of what his economic bill of rights would contain, um, was, was, you know, this is a deliberate shorthand. I, I, that doesn't mean in, in any way, sense, or form that Bernie is backing off Medicare for all. But, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of uh, repositioning uh, Roosevelt's economic bill of rights, I think I think he was just reading uh these are like sub headlines uh i i i wouldn't i i don't take this in any way as a modification or scaling back of uh his ambitious proposal yeah and i uh, well uh and, and similarly just to harp on this a little bit longer the right to a secure retirement he's referring to social security well we've had social security you know for since uh almost everybody is since it was expanded in the 50s by Eisenhower, and, uh, you know, the Republicans would like to privatize it, but there aren't any Democrats who are against the right to a secure yeah, but retirement. Bernie has proposed uh, making Social Security uh, payments uh, closer to, you know, the, the living wage equivalent of Social Security, raising the dollar amount. Yeah. So I think that's what he... Uh, that's what he has in mind. You could emphasize the secure uh, part of it, I, I suppose. Yes. And the right to a yes. decent job that pays a living wage, that seems to me quite a radical idea that there's a right to a job, not just a right to a living wage, if you have a well, job. In, in, fact, in, in fact, that was a specific proposal uh, uh, that Roosevelt made in 1944, uh, which uh, was uh, led to a legislative debate on full employment, which then it never resulted uh, it never came to fruition. Uh, so he's, he's renewing that, and it is a radical proposal. Um, and, you know, there are uh, academics and others who have talked about this, and even Cory Booker, who is in many ways the, the Democratic presidential candidate who has historically been closest to Wall Street, has talked about uh, pilot programs of full employment. So that that too is is something that is uh, not just on Bernie's uh, Bernie's mind, but uh, 
that of uh, some other candidates, too. And, and uh, really, this is renewing that of, of all the proposals that uh, Bernie mentioned, in, albeit in shorthand form, that one most closely tracks what Franklin Roosevelt said in 1944. Uh, and I would also underline the right to affordable housing is a radical demand right now, especially since we're talking to you from Los Angeles. The right to affordable right. housing doesn't exist uh, in Los Angeles now, and it's a very you know obvious and painful subject. Well, and it's beginning to enter uh, the uh, the discourse of the Democratic presidential candidates. Uh, Cory Booker is now called for a version of uh, extending. Section 8 benefits to anyone who spends more than 30% of their income on, uh, on housing. Uh, I, I think this will, become, uh, this will become an issue, and I think it will become an issue uh, that I would expect candidates to mention as they campaign in the California primary in particular. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. We're talking about Bernie's speech about socialism yesterday in Washington. Uh, Bernie calls himself a democratic socialist, while Elizabeth Warren calls herself a capitalist. But I wonder if Elizabeth Warren is actually against any of the things that he says socialism means today. I think the short answer to that is no. Uh, and I, I think uh, Bernie is, is sort of straddling a line that uh, exists uh, uh, sort of str straddling the very kind of fuzzy border between social democracy and, and American left liberalism. And he approaches that uh, from uh, the, the democratic socialist perspective. Elizabeth Warren approaches that from the liberal side of, of that fuzzy border. And I think that fuzzy border uh, is where a lot of uh, rank-and-file Democrats and American liberals and American radicals all kind of end up. Uh, and there are more of them this year uh, than uh, I, 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 in any presidential contest that I can, uh, I can remember. There was an L.A. Times poll out today about Calif uh, California yes, Democrats. Yes. And Joe Biden was ahead, not by a very large margin, but by, by, he had 22% support. Elizabeth Warren had 18%. Bernie had 17%. Well, add up Warren and, and, and Elizabeth, uh, Warren and Elizabeth, add up. Bernie and Elizabeth, and you're at 35% for them to 22% for Biden. So, A, I think there's a kind of, of fuzzy confluence, as it were, uh, between Warren and Bernie, and, and B, uh, a lot of the party is... Uh, on board with that uh, that fuzzy confluence. Yeah, I was very struck by that, that if you add together the, the Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders support in the state of California, the most liberal state, so sort of test the, where the left is strongest in the Democratic Party today, you're quite right. Um, we have 35 uh, percent compared to Biden's 22 percent, and Kamala Harris at Kamala Harris at 13, undecided in fifth place with 11. Um, I still, but I would underline here, if the most liberal state has about 35% on the left wing of the party, that's still not close to a majority. And, you know, you can't rule, you can't win the party. Well, maybe you can, maybe you can win the primary, but you can't really claim you know, hegemony over the party if you've got 35%. So I was, frankly, a little disappointed with the results of that poll, but please correct me here. 
Well, I mean, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of under, uh, the, the if you add up the votes of the, the serious candidates, yeah. in the poll, it's way under a hundred, and you yeah. know, I mean, because there's so many candidates and so many don't knows and what have you. So the thirty-five percent, when you when you strip that out, is is uh, is is more. I, I think Biden's uh, percentage is still going to fade, uh, still going to decline more. Uh, I, I think it's a little too early. Uh, oh, yeah. What we know from polling on uh, questions of policy and attitude is that uh, at least at least half of the party, and probably more, is uh, on board uh, with some of Bernie's labeling as, 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 as you know, okay with uh, uh, a, a guy who calls himself a socialist. And if you poll people on the kind of proposals that Bernie and Elizabeth Warren have made, uh, you get a, a very high level of support. Uh, you know, people who say they're for Joe Biden may not be responding to any particular policy or even a sort of larger political perspective. Uh, he does get the votes of people who recognize him and may not recognize the others. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, yeah. really, I wouldn't, I wouldn't read too much into data like that, except the fact that uh, it, it shows a rather low total for Biden and uh, perhaps not surprisingly low total for Kamala Harris. Uh, uh, we have to remember that to be elected statewide in California is not necessarily to be known by very many Californians, given the yes. political culture or lack thereof of California. So it, 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 it's early yet, and uh, I, I, I wouldn't read too much ideologically uh, to, into those, that poll data. So... Um... Getting back to Bernie's speech yesterday for a minute, he, he said he called socialism the unfinished business of the Democratic Party. And as you have underlined, he spent a lot of time quoting FDR. He even spent some time quoting Harry Truman, who we usually, uh, we on the left don't think of as a socialist. But if, if he's a supporter of FDR and Truman, and if this is the unfinished business of the Democratic Party, why isn't Bernie a Democrat? Uh, that's a question better posed to uh, to Bernie, I think, than than to me. Uh, uh, I, I I think in many ways the fact that he's not a Democrat and the fact that he calls himself a Democratic Socialist is a certain uh, loyalty to the politics of his youth, yeah, uh, to uh, where where he came from, uh, to the movements that shaped who he was in the 1960s, uh, and he's a you know he he's not a guy who's Changed much, and so even as uh, the Democratic Party has embraced a lot of his ideas and, in some ways, mainstreamed them, the way he uh, maintains his political identity, uh, if he's not distinct for calling for Medicare for all, for instance, he is at least distinct in uh, essentially uh, uh, still calling himself a Democratic Socialist and not being a member of the party, though he routinely campaigns uh, for Democrats who, uh, who want his support. So, and, and conversely, I don't know of any third-party candidate he's campaigned for, um, you know, in, in the last 30 years. So go figure. Yeah, uh, indeed. We're going to be talking a little <clears throat> later in in this program about the indivisible pledge with Ezra Levin, where Bernie was the first of all 22 candidates to pledge that he would support the winner, whoever it was. So if it's Joe Biden, Bernie has already said he's going to support the winner uh, of the Democratic uh, primaries. 
because he wants to beat <laughs> Trump, of course, but it underlines your point that he's very loyal to the Democratic Party, no matter what, no matter who they pick. Well, and maybe that because he's not a member of the Democratic Party, he has to be more Democratic, yes. capital D, than <laughs> yeah. thou, whoever thou may be. Excellent, excellent point. Uh, the, the California poll, which you cited here, did contain one finding which I found to be a shocker. Sanders trails Warren among voters on the left. This is a quote from the uh, report from the California poll uh, where he beats Warren and everybody else is among voters younger than 30. He gets 39% of young voters compared with 19% for Warren and 9% for Joe Biden. Do you have any understanding of why voters on the left would would uh, prefer Warren to Sanders? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, to begin with, Bernie has always done better uh, with younger voters. I mean, the younger the age cohort, the, the better his percentage. And partly that's his image as the guy who is outside the uh, establishment. Yeah. And that's another thing that not being a Democrat and being an avowed Democratic Socialist gets him. Um, well, Warren's programmatic ideas uh, are basically, uh, I think, ideologically almost indistinguishable from Bernie's, A. B, uh, Warren may strike some folks as more elect, some, even some folks on the left, as more electable than Bernie. Um, C, uh, she's a woman, uh, as Bernie is not. So uh, I, I can imagine uh, any number of people on the left saying, well, since the uh, distinction between Bernie and Elizabeth is not that great, on issues. Actually, they're both sort of functionally social Democrats. And since I think he may not have a chance to ultimately go all the way, and she may, uh, I support Elizabeth Warren. So I think that could be a, uh, you know, what, what uh, some people on the left are thinking. Excellent, excellent answer to the question. My, my Bernie, uh, Bernieite friends say uh, their proposals may be similar or the same. But there is a major difference, which is that Bernie uh, is interested in and committed to and experienced in building a movement. And Elizabeth Warren is experienced in creating proposals for legislation. And that is a huge difference because without a big progressive movement pushing, uh, nothing is going to happen with proposals like this in Washington. I wonder if you think there's any merit to that argument. I think there is some merit, but I also think that movements are not built by uh, individual presidential candidates or senators or even presidents. I don't think the left goes away uh, if uh, uh, Warren were elected any more than it goes away if Bernie is elected. I mean, you know, I, I, I think uh, pretty much everyone on the left learned the lesson uh, of, of the Obama presidency when he could have deliberately dismantled this huge, enthusiastic operation uh, that uh, helped elect him in, 20, uh, in, in 2008, uh, I, I think the left is going to be there pushing uh, no matter who is president, uh, even as, you know, this, we have this unprecedented mobilizations against Trump uh, right now. Um, so uh, I, I, I think uh, we just have to trust, you know, the movement activists are, are, are going to be there uh, come what may. The left is going to be there whoever wins. Harold Meyerson, 
Read him at prospect.org, the American Prospect website. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch in the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, more on the Democrats in California. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, why won't Joe Biden sign the pledge to support whoever wins the Democratic nomination? Ezra Levin will talk about the Indivisible Pledge. Fourteen Democratic presidential candidates all came to the same event, the California Democratic Party State Convention in San Francisco. But one big one was missing, Joe Biden. For comment, we turn to David Dayen. He's the new executive editor of The American Prospect. He's published widely at The Intercept, The Washington Post, The LA Times, and The Nation. His first book is the award-winning Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. David Dan, welcome back, and congrats on the new job at The Prospect. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I, I'm, I'm only going to be publishing at The Prospect from now on um, as their executive editor, and uh, so that that is my, my home, and uh, we're looking forward to great stuff there. Well, California. California, for the first time, will be an early primary state Californians will vote on Super Tuesday, which is March 3rd, 2020, only, what, eight months from now. You were in San Francisco last weekend. 5,000 delegates to the California State Democratic Convention were there, too, but Joe Biden was not. Why not? Well, I think he was there in spirit, uh, as, as we'll talk about, but... Um you know, Biden did this event in Ohio with the Human Rights Campaign. Uh, he said that was on the books for a while, and that he will attend in November uh, what is known as the Endorsing Conference, which uh, uh, will be in California in Long Beach. Uh, and there's going to be a candidate forum sponsored by Univision uh, at that event. Uh, the real reason, I think, uh, is that uh, Biden has generally run uh, what I guess I would call a front porch campaign. He has uh, tried to stay out of trouble by saying as little as possible and appearing in front of as few people as possible, uh, which, you know, front runners sometimes do. Uh, he, he seems to want to ride the coattails of being the vice president to a popular president and uh, not get into trouble with his mouth as he's <laughs> prone to do, uh, and and so that's the decision that he made. But uh, certainly, uh, there there definitely was an undercurrent of uh, candidates testing out uh, potential lines of attack against Biden when he does actually have to have to face voters and and face them in debates in just a few weeks. Well, one of those uh, was a flyer that uh, you wrote about for the prospect that uh, talked about uh, Biden. Tell us about that flyer. 
Yeah, so Roots Action uh, uh, released uh, this, this sort of two-page flyer, which had a lot of quotes from prominent uh, liberal writers and also quotes from Biden himself that uh, were sure to uh, maybe antagonize some of the more progressive delegates. And these were passed out throughout the weekend. Uh, you know, things like uh, Biden saying that Dick Cheney was a good guy, uh, that he said that uh, uh, billionaires aren't the problem with America, they're, they're good people, uh, things like that that uh, were, were, were sure to prick the uh, uh, attention of uh, uh, people who maybe favor other candidates. So Biden is the front runner, according to almost all the polls. Uh, you say he was a presence even in his absence. Let's talk a little bit more about who went after him explicitly and uh, what lines of criticism did they raise? Yeah, well, nobody mentioned him by name. The closest would be Bernie Sanders, who talked about people who showed up to the convention and people who, for whatever reason, didn't want to show up in front of you. Uh, but there were definite undercurrents of the kinds of attacks that candidates might use to test out uh, against Joe Biden. I think maybe the strongest one came from Elizabeth Warren, who really uh, uh, put in her seven-minute campaign speech uh, to the delegates this, this idea that uh, we, we can't just think small, we can't nibble around the edges when we need big structural change uh, for problems that even predated Donald Trump. Uh, she said that any time that someone tells you to relax and, 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 and just think small and, and go slow, uh, what they're actually telling you uh, as, a, as a politician is that they're not going to fight for you. And I, Elizabeth Warren, will fight for you. So I think that's something you can see uh, come up in the next few weeks uh, during these debates. Uh, there were similar lines from uh, people like Pete Buttigieg, who said uh, we, we, can no long, we, we can no more, as Democrats, promise to go back to the 90s as, as conservatives can say they want to go back to the 50s. Uh, he, 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 you know, has, has presented this sort of forward-thinking uh, uh, concept. Uh, and Cory Booker said something similar, and, and, and uh, Bernie Sanders' entire speech was posited on this idea of no middle ground, which is a reference to what Biden's uh, environmental policy aide, uh, Heather Zischel, said about his climate policy, that it would be a middle ground. Of course, he released that. Uh, uh, earlier this week, and uh, he was criticized by some, uh, including Jay Inslee, for it not going far enough. And so uh, Sanders' entire speech was about how we, we must have no middle ground on these uh, very crucial debates, uh, whether you're talking about climate change or uh, reproductive choice or inequality or, or foreign policy. So, uh, you know, we, we definitely saw a lot of almost testing of the waters here of how how these candidates are going to go after uh, the front runner in this race. I notice you did not yet mention Kamala Harris. A lot of people would think that she would be a favorite since she is the one Californian in uh, in the primary. How did she go over? Well, I mean, it was kind of interesting uh, that she was a little bit overshadowed. I mean, on Friday night, the night before the convention, 
uh, Elizabeth Warren comes to Kamala Harris's hometown and gets 6,500 people on a soccer field in Oakland uh, uh, and, and gives this very rousing speech. Uh, Harris certainly had visibility. She had a lot of supporters uh, who attended the convention. Uh, but I would say she did not get the warmest reception uh, in, in her campaign speech. Uh, you know, Warren certainly did very well. Uh, uh, Booker uh, gave uh, a really interesting speech uh, that pivoted off of a, a, a reference right before he came out to gun violence uh, in, in Virginia Beach. And he almost off the cuff delivered this really fiery address. Um, and so, I mean, I think Harris did well, but she didn't, you know, exceed any expectations that were set for her because maybe she uh, is the hometown girl. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a sense that she, she maybe uh, uh, could have done better. And certainly nobody is ceding California to Kamala Harris just because she represents the state in the U.S. Senate. Well, the pundits tell us that because California is so big, money is everything in this primary because political campaigns are uh, de- extremely dependent on TV ads. And they say candidates will in, in the primary will need at least $5 million to be competitive. And there's only a few who are going to raise $5 million. That's Certainly Bernie, Biden, probably Kamala Harris, since she's from here, probably maybe Elizabeth Warren, uh, if she does okay in Iowa and New Hampshire. I wonder if you agree with the pundits on the importance of uh, money in TV ads in California. Well, I will say this, and I, I just referenced the 6,500 people uh, showing up to see Warren in Oakland. Uh, I mean, I went to uh, an event at the Santa Monica Public Library for Amy Klobuchar, not a top-tier candidate necessarily, and they had an overflow crowd. So I think California Democrats are really desperate uh, for this retail campaigning, this attention that Iowa and New Hampshire voters get every four years with the, the shaking of the hands and the, the, the picture-taking and the, and the direct uh, uh, dialogue. So, uh, you know, we're, we're going to see some big crowds. It is such a big state that it is very difficult uh, to, to have a retail strategy here for any statewide candidate. So, so yes, money is definitely going to play uh, a big role. But I do think there is a hunger for, uh, uh, to, to really talk to candidates, to see them in person, to get their, their you know, perspective. Uh, as as a prerequisite to, to securing that vote. Well, in the 2016 California primary, three years ago, Hillary got 53 and Bernie got 46 and nobody else got anything. Do you think that means that Joe Biden will inherit uh, Hillary's majority and that I guess then the Bernie votes, would some of them would go to Elizabeth Warren and maybe others would get uh, a few? Is that, is that a reasonable way to look at it? I mean, we don't know what the field is actually even going to look like by the time California votes. Uh, uh, California has had, by the way, early voting, uh, uh, an early spot on the, the primary calendar uh, re- as recently as 2008. Uh, it was part of Super Tuesday. Um, and what we learned there is that uh, because of the delegate allocation, there really isn't one vote in, in California. 
but it's based on uh, the congressional districts. There's almost a different election in every congressional district, and the the delegates uh, that come out are allocated uh, by that congressional district, and you have to get a pretty significant spread of the vote in order to win a significant number of delegates over your challengers. And, of course, you have to get 15% of the vote even to get any delegates at all out of a particular district. So uh, all that being said, it's very, very complex. Uh, I, because we don't know really where uh, it's, it's going to land, I don't think we can say, well, this, this was the, the final vote tally in 2016, and, and, and you know, that we'll map Biden onto Clinton and, and Bernie and Warren onto, uh, onto Bernie, and, and that's how it's going to go. There, there are a lot of candidates. Uh, I think uh, California voters are, are, are open to plenty of them. Uh, I, I don't think Biden has a lock on this place. I don't think Kamala Harris, even though she's the home state senator, has a lock. And so uh, there, there's going to be a, some vigorous competition here, uh, provided that uh, these candidates make it to Super Tuesday. I, I, I don't think it's a given that uh, all of them uh, make it past Iowa, and I don't think it's given that all of them make it to Iowa. And, of course, some of our friends have the opposite worry that because of this whole allocation system, the vote will be hopelessly splintered in California and that California will go to the Democratic National Convention with 22 percent for one candidate and 20 percent for the second candidate and 18 percent for the third candidate. And there won't be any clear uh, winner. What do you think of the chances of that happening are? Well, I mean, that's sort of the stuff of journalistic legend, right? The, the idea of a brokered convention and, and all, all this intrigue happening at the DNC. I'm not so sure that will happen. I think the field will tend to winnow very quickly. Uh, some of that is a function of money. You just won't have the, the funds to go forward. Uh, so I, I take a bit of a wait-and-see approach to that. I think the, the viability threshold, that 15%, I don't think there's more than half dozen, maybe maybe 10 candidates total that will ever get any more than 15% in any one state, which means there are only a, a small number of candidates that will ever get a single delegate. And uh, you can envision a, 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 a setup where, you know, one candidate gets 25, one candidate gets 20, everybody else is under 15 and those two will split uh, the, the, all the delegates with the majority going uh, to the one who only got 25% of the vote. So uh, uh, that I, I feel like they're, they're, you know, this is a great fantasy, but we, we don't have any evidence that's going to happen. It's been decades since there was a convention uh, where the nominee wasn't decided on the first ballot. Uh, I know we've had, we have more candidates in this race than we ever have uh, in any other race before, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the, the, a similar dynamic isn't going to play out with a tremendous amount of winnowing of the field and ultimately a, 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 a natural victor emerging. But, you know, who knows? David Dayen, he's the new executive editor of the American Prospect, where he wrote about how in California, Democratic hopefuls countered Joe Biden's status quo politics. David, thanks so much for talking with us today. All right, thanks. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, 
the indivisible pledge. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. Now it's time to talk about Indivisible, the nationwide progressive grassroots organization that's campaigning to defeat Trump. For that, we turn to Ezra Levin. He is co-executive director of Indivisible. Previously, he served as deputy policy director for Congressman Lloyd Doggett, who represents Austin, Texas, in the House. Ezra Levin, welcome to the program. John, thanks for having me. Well, first of all, remind us about Indivisible. What exactly is it? Yeah, Indivisible is this nationwide movement of locally-led progressive groups all around the country. They're literally in every single congressional district in the country, from the reddest red to the bluest blue to the purplest purple. There are Indivisible groups organizing uh, to uphold progressive values. And they started immediately after the Trump's election. Leah Greenberg, who's my spouse and the other co-executive director, we um, we were both former congressional staffers. We wrote this guide called the Indivisible Guide shortly after Trump was elected that basically said, hey, we were on Capitol Hill during uh, the rise of the Tea Party. We disagreed with just about everything they did, their ideology, um, some of their tactics, their racism. But we thought that they were really smart on strategy. Organize locally, focus on your elected officials and never give an inch. Um, and so we put the guide out and uh, shockingly, John, people read it, and then even more shockingly, they actually formed these <laughs> indivisible groups all over. And so for the past two and a half years, we've been leading this uh, national organization supporting those groups all over the country. And what exactly is the Indivisible Pledge? So the Indivisible Pledge is something that we launched just a few weeks ago. And we launched it because there are, and gosh, I haven't checked my phone recently, but at most recent uh, check, we had 24 people running for president on the Democratic side. Uh, here's the thing we know, John. Uh, 23 of those people are not going to become president. That's just math. Indivisibles are dedicated to replacing Trump with a, a president who isn't uh, determined to destroy American democracy. And so that means that we need to engage in the primary. We ought to be uh, debating the future of the Democratic Party, the future of the progressive movement. That's important. We ought to engage in the primary. And also, we have to recognize that at the end of the day, we're going to rally around whoever wins and beat Trump. Um, and so the pledge has two parts. There's a pledge for our grassroots groups and their grassroots members, and then there's a pledge for presidential candidates. And signers of the pledge agree to three things. One, they agree that they're going to engage in this primary, and they're going to make it constructive. We're going to debate this future of the progressive movement. Two, they're going to agree that after the primary is over, after we've selected a Democratic nominee, we're going to endorse that nominee. Uh, and three, they agree that it's not just endorsing. We've got 16 weeks between the Democratic National Convention in 2020 and the election in November 2020, and we have to spend every single week ensuring that Donald Trump isn't president in 2021. The language of the presidential candidate pledge says, I will put myself at the disposal of the winning campaign. So it is a pretty high bar. Frankly, I... 
I was not worried about our grassroots members. I wasn't worried about the indivisible groups. That's where they are. They are engaging the primaries. They did this in 2017 and 2018, and they know that we're going to rally around the winner. I was hopeful that we would be able to get the presidential candidates to agree to this as well. And many, many of them have. Actually, as of right now, every Democratic presidential candidate in the primary that's polling at 1% or more has now signed the indivisible pledge with just one exception. One candidate has not signed. Who is it? That candidate is Joe Biden. And now I will say we have been talking to Joe Biden's campaign. Um, We are in communication with him. We are hopeful that he will indeed get on the pledge. And if he doesn't, he's going to be hearing from more and more constituents. You know, there was an indivisible group uh, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, uh, and one of their members came out to a campaign event a few weeks ago with Joe Biden, um, shook his hand and asked him to sign the pledge and then gave the pledge to his staff. So we know he has it. We know he's considering it. And we're hopeful that before the first debate, he'll also be on board with this plan. I just have to speculate a little a little bit. Why wouldn't Joe Biden want to sign the pledge? Is it possible that he's telling us that if he lost the nomination to Bernie, he would not support Bernie? Uh, you're going to have to ask Joe Biden that. Um, I think from the indivisible group's point of view, you know, we, we're going to have disagreements about who the best candidate is. And that's fine. That's natural. That's what primaries are for. We ought to be asking people, what is your position on climate? What is your position on taxes? What's your position on immigration? We should be having these debates. But for indivisibles, we understand that at the end of the day, those differences are small compared to the differences between these 24 candidates and Donald Trump. So it's not a high bar for them because we all know what we're going to be doing the weekend after the Democratic National Convention. We've already started registering unity events all over the country. These indivisible groups in key states have already started registering these events for more than a year out. So it's not a question. This shouldn't be a question for any of the candidates themselves because we should all recognize the existential threat that Donald Trump poses to American democracy. And we should be unified around this idea that we got to unify around the ultimate nominee. If it's Bernie Sanders, if it's Elizabeth Warren, if it's Cory Booker, if it's Joe Biden, we should all get aligned that that's what we should do. Now, if candidates are refusing to sign this pledge in the primary, I think they're going to find that primary voters are going to have a second thought about whether to vote for them. Because if you're not willing to agree to that basic condition, why should we support you in the primary? Indivisible has some other issues. Uh, High on the list is impeachment. On Tuesday in the New York Times, uh, op-ed columnist Michelle Goldberg had some amazing statistics on the high proportion of Democratic voters who favor opening an impeachment inquiry. What is Indivisible arguing now about impeachment? We have actually polled our groups on this, and we've been talking to them a lot, too. It's worth noting, again, that Indivisible is not the uh, the Ezra Levin movement or the Leah Greenberg movement. We are a movement of folks all across the country who are leading this. So we don't make just about any big strategic decisions uh, like whether or not to push for impeachment without asking our groups what they think. And what we've heard is, is loud and clear. What we hear is uh, actually more than 80 percent of the indivisible groups who we've surveyed recently are in favor of starting impeachment proceedings. And that's all over the country. That includes swing states, that includes purple districts, uh, in addition to city centers, in addition to to blue states. And so we we take that to heart. We want to 
be sure that we are uh, making sure that the indivisible groups have their voices heard on this issue. And we understand that even good progressives, well-meaning progressives, disagree on this. I think what you would hear from some folks in Democratic leadership uh, is not disagreement around whether Donald Trump has committed impeachable crimes. I think Nancy Pelosi and, and um, Representative Hoyer and others say that, yes, this, this man is unfit to be president um, and would probably say that, yes, we believe that he is committed impeachable crimes, the same, the same as indivisibles would say. Um, that's not what's up for debate. I, I think what we hear from House Democratic leadership is maybe this is going to hurt us in 2020. Maybe this isn't the politically smart thing to do. And, you know, I, I hear that argument, and I think indivisibles are grappling with that as well. But we also see the other side. Indivisibles got started in 2017 to fight against Trump care, to fight against Supreme Court nominee, to fight against rescinding of DACA. They started building the wave in 2018, registering voters, endorsing candidates, getting out to vote, because they wanted to check on this administration. And they were promised that when they did all that work, week in and week out, to make Nancy Pelosi Speaker of the House, to put Democrats in charge of the oversight apparatus, that we would actually get a check on this administration. That's what was promised. Now, we've heard from Mueller. We've heard from him himself essentially saying that it is up to Congress now to hold this man accountable, that his office couldn't do it. But now it is up to the House to move forward with impeachment proceedings. Mueller all but said that that is the next step. If Democrats fail to actually do their job, I worry about the political consequences there as well. I worry that it makes them look weak. I worry that it makes it look like they are betraying the grassroots that put them in power. And that has a negative political consequence as well. I can't tell you which one's bigger. I can't tell you if uh, starting impeachment proceedings will ultimately hurt us more or help help us more. And, and given that, given that basic uh, inability to predict the future, I think Democrats should just do their job. They should just do the right thing. And when we talk to indivisible groups around the country, they tell us the same thing. They would like to see impeachment proceedings begin. They would like Congress to actually do its constitutional duty. So uh, we've been talking with groups. We're participating in a, a June 15th National Day of Action. It's indivisible, but it's not just indivisible. Uh, it's a whole bunch of national organizations coming together to make clear that we expect House Democrats to actually do what they were elected to do. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Ezra, I looked at the indivisible map for Minnesota, and the indivisible groups in Minnesota are everywhere. There must be 50 or 60 or 70. I looked like on the north shore of Lake Superior territory, which I know pretty well. It's not just Duluth, Bernie campaign there in 2016. There's also a Two Harbors Indivisible. There's an Indivisible Huddle in Silver Bay. There's an Afterburners group in Grand Marais, which is the last thing before the Canadian border. Who organized all these groups? What, what's going on in Minnesota? What's going on in Minnesota, I will say, is what's going on in all 50 states. Uh, you know, Indivisible didn't start as some sort of, you know, command and control hierarchy where we traveled the country like Johnny Appleseed for civic engagement, starting all these groups. We, we released the Indivisible Guide. Uh, it went viral. Folks across the country, including throughout Minnesota, picked up the guide and started these groups. And I will say, I, I have a, um, a, a particularly soft spot in my heart for the Indivisible groups in Minnesota because uh, Leah and I uh, both went to school at Carleton College in, in um, uh, just south of the Twin Cities. 
And in fact, Minnesota 3 Indivisible, um, which is re- represents around the, the Minneapolis area, they have their own podcast. So there's ah. a Minnesota 3 Indivisible podcast, and Ali and I have both gone on that at least a couple times. Um, and they, you know, did incredible work, not just, you know, setting up their own podcast, not just fighting against a Trump care bill, but they actually mobilized behind uh, the new representative, Dean Phillips, who just recently got elected, is a freshman member, uh, and replaced Eric Paulson, who is a Republican representing that district and actually voted for some of the bad stuff that Trump is pushing. Well, I'm sorry we're out of time. We've been speaking with Ezra Levin. You can learn more about Indivisible at indivisible.org, where you can also find your local groups. And there are groups everywhere in the United States. Mm-hmm. Ezra, thanks so much for talking with us today. Hey, John. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on ninety-seven on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Now I want to spend the last couple of minutes we have here talking about Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review. That's the subject of a new documentary by Martin Scorsese that's playing now on Netflix. It premiered on Netflix last night. Uh, I want to recommend this as highly as I can. Uh, 1975, Bob Dylan went on the road playing small arenas, 3,000-seat arenas, not baseball stadiums. Uh, with a changing uh, lineup of some of his favorite people, Joan Baez, Patti Smith, Joni Mitchell, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, and Allen Ginsberg. Uh, Bob's singing in 1965 was, I think, more intense and more magnificent than any time before or after, especially on A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, just an unforgettable performance that was filmed in 1975 and is part of the Martin Scorsese documentary on Netflix now. There's a lot of weird things in it. He sings A Simple Twist of Fate, beautiful songs, at a mahjong uh, parlor. Um Joan Baez sings with him in 1975 and does an interview in the present uh, with Martin Scorsese. In fact, it has Bob Dylan's first interview in 10 years, and he's surprisingly forthcoming, um, which he hasn't always been in interviews. Uh, Patti Smith, the young Patti Smith, is incredible. Um, And Allen Ginsberg, of course, was part of the Rolling Thunder show. Uh, he recites, you know, I saw the best minds of my generation, starving, hysterical, naked. Uh, and they all sing. They all sing all the time. Not just Hey Tambourine Man, but, you know, they sing Love Potion Number 9. I looked it up. The Clovers, 1959. Uh, they sing Your Cheating Heart Will Tell On You, Hank Williams. Um Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review, the Martin Scorsese documentary on Netflix. And another one of the most memorable songs was Bob Dylan singing about Reuben Hurricane Carter, uh, a black boxer who was unjustly imprisoned for murder. Uh, This is the story of Hurricane. Let's listen Bob Dylan live on the Rolling Thunder Review in 1975. Shots ring out on a barroom night Enter Betty Valentine from the outer hall She sees a bartender and a pool of blood Has said, my God, they've killed them all 
Bob Dylan, in the Martin Scorsese documentary, Rolling Thunder Review on Netflix now. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests. Harold Meyerson talked about Bernie's speech about socialism. David Dayan talked about the California Democratic uh, Convention. I want to thank our engineer, Gary Baca. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Ry Cooter for this theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight, Rising Up with Sonali. Today's news with Sonali Kolhatkar. Hey, Trump watchers, if you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at this same time on this same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>